Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? I'm Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Thank you for joining me. I don't know when I've gotten so professional about that, the, the sort of intro. Nice to have you. Welcome. Welcome aboard the vessel. Just got back from Conan and uh, went well. It was nice to see everybody. I like hanging out. I took my niece, Matana, over there. She's in town. Showed her the studio. Uncle Mark showing around show business out there on the Warner lot, telling about telling her about the old days when they shot everything, all the movies there. They still shoot everything there. It's, I love going on a studio lot. It makes it's sort of interesting to to acknowledge and realize that you're in fucking show business when you're in show business, and nothing really hammers at home uh, like driving onto a studio lot. And there's only a few, but Warner Brothers is like one of the big ones. Just sound stages upon sound stages, as far as the eye can see. Well, that's an exaggeration. There's a lot of sound stages, but there's something about realizing like this is a business. This is where they make the product in these places. And Conan's got a pretty permanent situation over there on one of the big sound stages on the Warner lot. And it's always exciting to go over there. And I'm glad I was funny. So my little niece didn't have to go like, yeah, it's my uncle. You don't have to watch it, though. That was fun. So you can go watch that at uh, teamcoco.com or whatever the hell it is. Find it. Hope you're watching my TV show. That was on last night. A funny episode with Joey Diaz. Next week is great, too. It only gets... Wow, I'm really, uh, I guess I'm really into my own TV show. It only gets more fun. Today on the show, what do we got? Daniel Klaus. The amazing Daniel Klaus is here. Graphic novelist, comic artist, creator of uh, many powerful, impactful things in my life. The 8-Ball Comics, Lloyd Llewellyn, uh, Like a Velvet Glove, Caster and Iron. Uh, there, there's so many. Ghost World, his new book is... Uh, Pretty fucking amazing. Patience. I it was just, I love talking to these guys. I've talked to a few of the graphic uh, novelists, the uh, comic artist guys, and it's always interesting to me because if you were, I, I was never a Marvel Universe person or a real sort of hardcore comic person, but I guess what they would call underground comics were always very important to me, and he's one of the big dudes. I was, I was thrilled to talk to him. Also, I'm going to be talking to uh, Ezra Edelman, who's um amazing oj documentary oj made in america premieres this saturday 
June 11th on ABC. And that's just part one. Then parts two through five will air the following Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday on ESPN. I watched all this stuff, like binged it completely when I got the screeners. It's one of the most profound and beautifully layered documentaries I've ever seen in my life. And you cannot stop watching it. And it's it's about so much more than you could even anticipate. So Klaus and Edelman today, and, and uh, we'll get to that in a second. On the AT&T front, they've sent some people. Some technicians came over. They did the readings. They brought the meter. There's not uh, a lot of dangerous uh, rays coming into the office, apparently. I'll trust these guys. They're subcontractors. They have nothing invested in lying to me. But they did uh, offer me some hope on the um, mundane and ridiculous luxury problem of my stereo issue. They're going, apparently it's the heritage box. That means anything to you? You know a lot more about cell towers than I do. The heritage box is what the stereo is picking up. And that's the oldest box up there to, I guess, service some flip phones and some other things. And there's a frequency it emits that my, uh, my old stereo, which is a heritage stereo, just by coincidence, is picking it up. So they had some big ideas about a, uh, a blanket or some shield. They were talking shields. They were talking RF uh, shield blankets. All sounded good. They were decent guys dealing with a neurotically obsessed idiot, myself, who uh, just wants to be comfortable and listen to records in his office when he wants to and also doesn't want to uh, be irradiated to the point of insanity. So that's what's going on on that front. They're on it. We'll see if they let these subcontractors do it. All right? All right, we got a full show here, so let's get to it. Uh, As I said before, Ezra Edelman is the director of OJ Made in America, which premieres this Saturday, June 11th on ABC. That's just part one. Then parts two through five will air the following Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday on ESPN. Oh, and speaking of docs, how many of you guys saw that doc? Well, I guess it's on the festival circuit. I don't know if you The one I narrated called Sidemen, Long Road to Glory. It's screening this Saturday at Bonnaroo. And then in the UK on June 22nd, go to Sidemen film.com for screening information docs everywhere i just watched a screener of the jt Leroy doc that was something yeah plenty of docs no shortage of docs in the world but this oj doc is insane and it's genius and i'm going to talk to the man that was at the helm of it uh mr ezra edelman right sometimes i wish i paid more attention in school or in some cases any attention at all there are probably a lot of things i could have gotten more out of like literature and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics but luckily for us there's a new podcast called the foxed page that dives deep into the best books of all time this is basically like the best possible college english class but more relaxed and fun no pressure of grades or needing to prepare Prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts now. All right, so here's my experience with uh, the documentary. 
OJ made in America. So I get this wink. And as we were talking about before, Neil Brennan, who we both know, came up to me at the comedy store, like, you know, starry eyed, like, dude, dude, you got to watch this. You got to watch this OJ made in America. Mike, is it on? He's like, no, it's not on you. You got to, I think he watched it maybe twice. He's like, I watched it twice. I'm like, all right, dude. He's like, seriously. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. I'm going to watch it. Because <laughs> I knew I was going to talk to you. So I get the thing. And sure enough, you know, you enter this world uh, with this m- movie that's on or the miniseries or whatever the fuck it is. Like, I, I, Docu-series. Yeah. I have no interest in yeah. it. Like, I don't care. <laughs> and then, like, I get the links to your thing. And I'm like, all right. Well, I, I, and I said to my producer, I'm like, wait, is there, is there a question about whether he did it or not? And Brendan's like, no, it's not about that. And I'm like, well, okay. Like, I didn't know what it was going to be about. And then, you know, you watch it and, you know, where you start, you know, at, you know, in Potrero Hill, San Francisco, the neighborhood OJ came from. And then you're sort of like when I, when I tell people about it, you, you're really tracking. It's a documentary about about race, about the relationship with the of the black community with the LAPD, uh, uh, about um, civil rights to a degree. Like, you know, for the first three hours. You're like, where's the murder? Right. Well, kind of. <laughs> but I mean, I was I, I wasn't really like. I didn't know. I didn't think it would necessarily be about that. But what does it take when you what what was because it really is about it's about celebrity culture. It's about race. It's about Los Angeles. It's about OJ. But OJ really becomes almost this cipher that you use as a portal, you know, into in, in, investigating money, power, celebrity, race. You know, the legal system. So, how did this project come to be? Um. ESPN approached me, a guy named Connor Shell, who is the uh, who runs ESPN Films, and started. Um, I know you. I don't mean to speak to you as if I've done a lot of research. Right. I was told by a friend of mine that another mutual friend, Wyatt Sinak, that yeah, um, you're not a huge sports guy. Right. So my guess is you haven't watched a lot of sports documentaries that no. ESPN would have done. So they've done. He started this thirty for thirty series. They'd probably done. 90 docs yeah. oh, over the really? course of like s- six or seven years as ambitious as yours no no not at all and right. I, actually the the conversation was we want to start doing more at a more ambitious things uh-huh so connor came to me and he said uh so we're interested in doing it we're thinking about doing a five-hour thing five-hour project yeah and that was like oh i want to i want to do a five-hour film that's what i want to do and then it was oh but what is it about? Right. And they said, oh, it's about OJ. That's what we're thinking. And I was like, mm. Really? Well, what, why? Why? Uh, what was the first? What it, What hit you immediately? I was like, oh, what you want is the trial and going the through the murder. Shit. Like, right. yeah, it's like, which we all live through and has been talked about ad nauseum. Right. And what more can I say? What right. can I add to that conversation? Sure. And I happen to be coming out here the next day. Right. And I have a lot of friends out here, all of whom... You know, they're my friends. They know me pretty well. And I said, you know, ESPN asked me if I wanted to do this five-hour thing about OJ. And they kind of were like, are you crazy? I think you need to do this because... Just because of the opportunity? Thematically, it's about a lot of the things that you're interested in. Like, what was your history? What's your... Well, I'll tell you in a second. And, you know, but basically when I thought about it, it was the canvas of... It was it was the five hour thing that ended up being the determinant because I realized that I didn't have to do the tr- like the trial right. I could go back and explain the context, get into the history of Los Angeles of the LAPD, yeah. 
get into OJ's time at USC, yeah. a dynamic I understood about him being a black kid coming from Portrero Hill, going to this Lily White University right. that's super conservative, that's also next door to Watts, right. that had exploded in violence a year and a half before he came there. I already knew that. And yeah. so if I could tell that story, then I'm in. Right. Um, and so that's what got me was the history because I was a history major in college. This would have been like a huge American studies thesis. Right. And that's how I kind of approached it. Right. It feels like that yeah. in, in a good way. You know, thesis it, sometimes is a word that people are like, what? In fact, I still think I have dreams about somehow like having an assignment. Like that my senior finish? year that I haven't even started. I was like, oh, I have to come up with, a, <laughs> with an idea. And it's February and it shit's doing March. Well, what is your what what is your background personally, and 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 then you know in ter- in in terms of film? So you're a history major, but where'd you grow up? I grew up in Washington D.C. And what's your background? Background how? Like what are your what's your family like? Uh, you got a Jewish name. I got a Jewish name. My father is one of those. He's a, uh, Jew. He's a, Jew. He's a, he's a Jew. Yeah. Uh, my mother is black. She's from South Carolina. My dad's a Jew from Minnesota. Uh huh. So I grew up in a biracial household, multi-denominational household. Uh-huh. It comes through religion. Uh-huh. And uh, I have two older brothers. Uh-huh. Um, I come from a pretty serious family. In what way? Not a lot of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> but what was, the, what was the tone? Were they progressive? Were they... Uh, my parents you know, were... Yes, my parents... Uh, my mother was a civil rights lawyer in the South. She's the first black woman to pass the bar in Mississippi. That's... Pretty, uh, she met my father, who was an aide for Robert Kennedy in Mississippi in 1967. So, so that gives you, you a sense. are <laughs> not only Yeah, you're, you're you're a legacy of uh, of the original civil rights progressives. Yeah, uh, yeah. And in fact, I think my parents were. It's debated. I, it just became debated, but until about six weeks ago, uh-huh. I under I always understood that they were the um the first couple after the Loving decision to get first interracial couple uh-huh. to be married in the state of Virginia. Is that true? Yeah. Well, I think now it might be third. My mother recently said, I think we might have been now third. Not oh, second. now now that you're older, the, yeah. the truth is, <laughs> I mean, the, it was we were mythologized. Something like that. Uh-huh. I've been trying to break down that mythology for my entire life. Uh-huh. And I was like, I knew it. But so this thing that, uh, that you did with the OJ thing, I mean, I have to assume that even knowing the history, that once you got into it, once you started putting together some of the archival footage and the narrative, that it kept growing. Oh, yeah. It kept growing. It went from the initial conceit, which was five hours for television, yeah, which would be, and you would know this better than I do, as you have a show with commercials on TV, right? whatever percentage of it. So it would be four hours and 20 minutes, whatever it would have been. Right. And because I had no greater understanding of how to make a five-hour film as I would a 20-hour film, I just sort of went into it, and I, ama- you know, we amassed enough material, characters, interviews, footage that, as we were going through the process of editing, yeah, um, you know, within a few months, I said to Connor, the aforementioned guy who commissioned the project in the first place, I said, you know, I think we need five hours, not five hours for TV, and then a month later, I said, I think we need six hours, yeah, and he kept being like, fine, yeah, I'll figure it out, yeah. And, you know, that was our operating principle for the next few months. I was got to, we got to cut what was a, an 11 hour cut down to six, right. which seemed hard, but reasonable. Wasn't it seven? Well, no, then we finally showed a rough cut. It was a little over seven and a half hours. Um, we had a day where we went to a screening room in New York, uh, at ABC, bunch of people, it was a long day, came out of it. And, uh, Connor said, well, why don't we just make it seven and a half hours? And it <laughs> ended up being at seven hours and 44 minutes. Uh-huh. And so I couldn't, at that point I couldn't have 
gotten it down to six hours. So I was like, yeah, that would be great. Well, it, the fascinating thing about it, and I know there is historical precedent for singular documentaries being, you know, what hours. What, Showa? Yeah, Showa. Yeah, that's I, the precedent. <laughs> that's, it. that's the only one. <laughs> Keep going. I challenge you. Keep going. That was the only one I thought of, actually. (laughs) Yeah, but I I was I was protecting myself from looking stupid and thinking that there's got to be more than just Shoah. Yeah. Well, having and I haven't seen. I've seen bits and pieces when I was a kid. Right. But what had you done docs before? Yeah, I've done. uh, This is my fifth. Oh well, I had done four feature length docs. All for I worked at HBO for twelve years. Which ones you do? I did all sports docs. Mm-hmm. So I did a doc called Magic and Bird, mm-hmm. um, Courtship of Rivals about Magic and Bird, basketball players. Um, I did one about the Brooklyn Dodgers called The Ghosts of Flatbush. Mm-hmm. And um, one called The Curious Case of Kurt Flood about Kurt Flood, who's a baseball player who sued Major League Baseball in 1969 to be um, to be a free agent. So you're a sports fan. I am a huge sports fan. And O.J. Simpson was probably a little before your time. Just before my time. So he retired in 1979. I probably started watching sports in 1979. But you knew about him. Oh, yeah. He was a big part of my childhood. He was. I mean, mainly through watching him dodge people in Hertz commercials. Right. Which I would then do when I was in airports. Your dad or mom sports fans? Uh, My dad was a sports fan. I think my dad having three sons, I'm the youngest of three, I think he is a... He was not the greatest athlete in the world. Right. And I think he had the wisdom to put a ball in all of our hands when we were young and said... Go out there yeah. and play. Yeah, yeah. Be a better athlete than I ever could. Oh, that's and good. And so we were all sort of, that's what we did. So the interesting thing about OJ is that, in, I don't know if, you, I mean, you obviously know it, that, you know, as the narrative goes on and, you know, he's claiming to be above race and just a person, you start to realize that, you know, it's, it's, he's just about OJ. It, like the, that, you know, that he's trying to sort of, maybe not intentionally present himself as uh, racially progressive, whereas he's really completely narcissistic. No, that's correct. He's not aggressively about race one way or the other. It's right. I'm, I'm about me and I'm trying to do what I want to do, which is to be famous and to be loved and to right, be Right, but rich. it wasn't about dissolve the color line. No, it wasn't like I don't like being black. It right. wasn't like I'm trying to you know make some statement about being race neutral. Right. It was more like, Here's, I'm on this path to this place. The way for me to get to that place is to not be outspoken about matters of race, to not be political and militant at a time where white America might sort of look at me and go, oh, I'm not. Uh. But what was interesting, though, and, and if I'm remembering correctly, very few of his intimates, really, or the people that were even judging him who were black, called him a Tom. No, I mean, and well, also, it's a, that's a loaded term. I mean, I look at, you know, I think that whether it's revisionist history or the way that we've tended to think about OJ in the present is that he was that and to be very dismissive of the choices that he made. Uh And I looked at, especially when you look at him being 21, 21, 20, 21 years old. Yeah. And I know what I was like when I was in college. Like there's a lot put on him Mm -hmm. at at that, at that age Mm -hmm. and that he came up and was that just because he was a great athlete. All of a sudden, there's this expectation because you have this group of militant, strident guys who are over here saying, you have to be about this. But including Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown and... and uh, oh, yeah. These were some serious cats. And yeah. by the way, they were the and they were the cream of the crop when it came to um, black athletes. Yeah. And this was like the Justice League. Yeah. Bill Russell, mm-hmm. Lou Alcindor even, who was 
OJ's contemporary across town at UCLA was already political and talking about boycotting the 1968 Olympics. And so that was the climate that OJ arrived at, you know, or a lot arrived in when he got to, to USC. But it's like now OJ's in this place where no one's political there. Yeah. No one's black there. Right. And everyone's kissing his ass because he's a football star. And, he's de- and he detaches from it consciously, though. He, he does do that. And so when, when Harry Edwards, who is the um, you know, great famous uh, sociologist who was a professor at San Jose State at the time, organized something called the Olympic Project for Human Rights, and he was organizing athletes to potentially boycott the 68 yeah. games in, in Mexico, Mexico City, he came to OJ because of the, his prominence as an athlete and wanted him to join the movement. And OJ said, famously, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Right. And he was like, I'm going to do me. Yeah. And that's not me. Right. You know, I'm going over here. And in, in, the, in the weird thing about OJ, especially the way that the, the space that he occupies in our culture now, I mean, before all this shit happened, he was a trailblazer. I mean, OJ took a path that went that way. Yeah. He said, I want to um, be on TV and I want to hawk products and yeah. sign deals with Chevrolet and RC Cola before he'd ever play in the down in the NFL. Yeah. And I, I was fascinated by that. So in some ways, the one different story is OJ as this pioneering pitchman, this race-neutral, non-political black athlete, and he really begat Michael Jordan, who begat Tiger Woods. Right. And he set, he in some ways, he set that paradigm. Right. And so, I mean, look, how much that has to do with the story, I mean, to me, it has to do with the story because ultimately where we get to with his trial is the level of of symbolism, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of him becoming this symbolic black figure. Yeah. The amount politically that people invested in him, it was it was this great irony. Right. And so that's what all of this is about, which is seeing this weird juxtaposition, seeing these ironies and going like, of all people. How did you break this up in your mind as as an arc? When you when you saw the content you had, you've got I imagine three parts. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And and what what did, what did you? How did you see them? In fact, the film existed in three parts until the very late stage. Literally three parts. Literally until very late. Right. Late, which was essentially what encompasses now the first two parts. Everything leading up to the murders in, in June of ninety four. Everything through the trial, including the verdict, and then everything after. Right. That's how it was sort of broken up in my mind. And even the way we had three editors working, they were working on those separate chunks. Right. And then when when it became official that we were going to do, that it was going to be as long as it is, um, and then that which meant, oh, they're going to do 10 hours of television ultimately, and they wanted us to break, us up, break it up into five parts, I had to sort of figure out a mechanism to make it five parts versus three. Right. But, I, but the point being is that was kind of the structure in my head as far as the narrative. You know, the trickier part is where you're going to um, intercut in the first three hours the story of the LAPD and the community with OJ's story. That was, like, fascinating for me because I think I was politically uh, detached uh, at the time. And, and, you know, arguably, you know, I remember the chase. I remember the, you know, because I was doing a television show at the time. I remember, it, you know, capturing the nation. But I, I did not get hung up on the trial. I didn't either. And uh, I did, I was detached from it. But 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 that aside, the politics and the the um, the racially charged atmosphere of Los Angeles, the history of it was was not something I knew. Where were you at the time? New York. New York. For OJ, yeah, I was in New York. Uh, do you remember actually watching the chase? I do. 
Where were you? I was in the, uh, I was at HBO Downtown Productions. Hmm. What year was that? Uh, 94, June 94, June 17th, 1994. Yeah, I feel like where I was was in those offices where Short Attention Span Theater was. Oh, okay. When I was hosting that show, because I think I did that 93, 94-ish, but it, like, because I remember going in, they had TVs up, and I'm like, what's happening? Right. And that was that, I remember that, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's sort of a, look, I've thought about this a lot it's an interesting commentary that that's this uh, that's this shared event that we that we all have as far as remembering where we were and it's a television event mm-hmm. and it's honest it's not john kennedy being assassinated it's not martin luther king being assassinated it's oj and a white bronco right on the 405 right that's true and it's it's crazy yeah but like i thought what was amazing about what you were able to sort of kind of bring together in some kind of like i imagine uh, not, like not completely serendipitous way, but I could feel your your what must have been your excitement at the at the sort of levels you were able to kind of engage. Well, I mean, you it's, by, by just juxtaposing, by just montage. Oh yeah, that you were able. Like I just could see. I almost think I felt your excitement as the thing grew into like this multi level sort of um. It's not even an expose, but it's it's sort of like a a kind of like a serendipitous investigation of everything that defines the media right now, the legal system, and and race relations in this country. No, there's definitely a sense that no matter what I'm doing in telling a story that took place in the past, I don't even need to talk about what's happening in the present. It's so connected. Yeah, it, like it's the birth of that predatory tabloid television. And and also like and under in and once he becomes once he sells out, celebrity culture in general. Correct. So they're they're all operating. Oh, I look. I think there's there's a very real sense, and it's hard to um, convey this in the doc. But you know, if you follow OJ's trajectory, it is consistent with the trajectory of us in our culture. Right. As far as you know, OJ chose this superficial path. He came up in the most substantial of times. And he became most famous in 1968, the most volatile year in 20th century America, arguably. And when you look at his fame, how he became famous, it's like there's this downward line that you can draw as far as how our culture has devolved. Uh And he's a good and he's a wonderful lens to sort of explore that. I had not. I had not been privy to or or morbidly fascinated with to the point of compelling me to. To really take in that murder. Good. And you spend a lot of time, you know, doing that for us. And it's important to to see how fucking savage. Yes. That thing was. Yes. Fucking savage. I think, and I think the importance of that is, and frankly, I'm like you, I, I didn't engage with it that much either, if at all. But when you then look at what the trial became, and when you look at how everyone, the amount of people, by the way, in the media in this in this city alone who have come up to me and say i put a pool in my house because of the oj trial you know or i did that you know and you're like yeah F- do you know what happened yeah do you see these pictures like you you need to see this and for all you know whoever wants to maintain um a certain sort of like i don't believe he's guilty but you know maybe this happened or maybe he he knew he was he was somehow response like oh he might have known who was there or he's there there's someone else there or whatever dude just look at the pictures and it it forces you to engage with that crime and whatever level of complicity you believe he had because i don't think you can look at him the same way afterwards 
no, hell no. And just like that one detail of like, you know, he went back to both bodies to to cut some more. Whoever did it. Whoever did it. By, yeah. the, by, by the way, just tell me, what was... Yeah, before you watch this. So like you said, you didn't watch the... You didn't care about the FX series. Um, before you watch this, what was... If someone said OJ, like, are you just like, I don't give a fuck about OJ. So... Did you just not engage with this at all? Did you have an opinion about his when culture? I heard about your movie? No, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just in general the story. So, like, say a year ago, if someone was talking to you about OJ. Would you just be like, "Yeah, I don't really. It's not for me. Don't care." Well, I mean, I wouldn't say I, I didn't. I wouldn't care. And I, you know, obviously, I, I lean more towards the the reality that that you know that he did do it and and was complicit. And as time goes on, that nothing else was revealed. That would have changed your opinion, right? Yeah. That you know th- that you had to sort of take it for what it was, and and but the nuances of of what you did, in terms of you know even really realizing that whether he did it or not was not necessarily important to the people that were championing him. Mm-hmm. That's right, and that and I'm not talking about the lawyers. Correct. That's correct. It's it's all <laughs> that's that is correct. I mean, because when you when you document the history of injustice. Racial injustice towards that community and abuse and violence and death that, you know, at some point it's like killing's not, you know, we see it all the time, mm-hmm. but we don't see it from this side, mm-hmm. and, you know. And now, I mean, look, the complicated thing is you could believe that he's guilty. You could watch the film and say, I believe before and now I believe more than ever he's guilty. But I also may have been rooting for him to get off or i actually believe he should have um those are all um to me rational um responses to watching this because of that history and there are very real mistakes that were made by the prosecution the argument about you know proving something beyond a reasonable doubt um you know the burden of proof is on the prosecution and when you listen to the other juror not carrie best the younger juror yolanda crawford yeah and she's very um rational in her response to it she listened to the evidence and she believed the prosecution fucked up and that's why she chose you know to acquit oj and you go yeah it is more complicated in the way this has been reduced and the goldman stuff was was sort of fascinating because you know the pain of that family and the the sort of crusade of that father which you know as somebody who you know like is weirdly American and geared towards these narratives that, that are compelling that, you know, during that realizing that he became the annoying guy. Oh, he was, he was, uh, in some ways he was inspector Javert. Like he was like out, that was, he was obsessed right. with getting OJ, right. with getting justice. But, and of course it's personal. Yeah. It's his son. I mean, and that's what's, and that's another fucked up thing. Like how, how does the victim of this story become someone that you're looking at and you're like, dude, pull back a little bit it's very sensitive all of it and it's very complicated and it's made even talking about it very complicated because there's a sensitivity i feel like we all had myself producers editors and putting this together then all of a sudden and and you're not at all guilty of this this is a wonderful conversation but there are people who just want to boil things down to a certain essence right and i'm like no i spent all this time doing not that and I don't all of a sudden want you to say, so what do you really think about OJ? And and I'm like, I don't, no. I just, I just put all that out there. Think for your fucking yeah, self. Yeah, well that, you're going to have to deal with that, you know, the the horrible kind of like limited 
intelligence of the media community just by virtue of what they think they need to do is that you can't there's no way you can really explain or, or, or render down what was achieved with the documentary. It's got nothing to do, you know, with anything in particular. That's, uh, that's it, correct. That's it, correct. It, like in the sense that, you know, you can't, because the conversation, when you start having it about it, you know, it, it's like, cause people go like, so what'd you learn about OJ? It's like, it's not, it's not about, it's not really about OJ specifically, you know, it's, you know, it, it is very particular in what it focuses on, but what it implies and what it implicates and you know what it sheds light on and the questions that it poses are 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 very big and broad and and multi uh faceted more so than any this is a story that demands um no judgment right this is a story that demands like i'm going to talk to as many people universe uh, that come from all sides and just let them say their piece mm-hmm. i'm here to hear you and then i'll put it together in a way that sort of is fair to everybody. Yeah. And then the viewer can decide. Did you reach out to him? Yeah. I, I wrote him a email. He, they have something called J-mail. J-mail. Yeah. mail I wrote him as long as there was a certain amount of characters you're afforded. Yeah. And I went up to the limit. Never heard back. I waited. I waited a long time because it's not as if this whole project was contingent upon whether OJ participated or right. not. And it's not as if OJ is not on the record saying what he has to say. Right. For all time. Um, and I waited until I was done with all my interviews and I said, look, man, I'm doing this thing. I've interviewed 72 people from all across the spectrum. Um, I didn't want to reach out to you until I had done my homework. I've done my homework. I know you've not done an interview since you've been in jail, but if you would be willing to grant me a half hour interview, I'll take it. If you want to sit with me for a whole day, I'll take that a whole week, whatever you want. Nothing. Crickets. Really? Didn't bother me. No, why should it? I mean, like you said, it was not necessary. It was not necessary, and and I don't believe that he would have been the most forthcoming of interview subjects. Well, the only thing that would have been interesting about it is how he handled it. I mean, I wouldn't expect him to be forthcoming at all, but would how would he work it? Well, that's I mean, in the end, it's like if you're someone who enjoys interviewing people, yeah, and you get to interview OJ sure. Simpson, no, no, I get that. I'd be right. like, oh, please, I would right. like that challenge. And now, so like uh, the life of the thing is now on ESPN, and I know you showed it in some theaters. We it was released in um, the theaters for a week in New York for Oscar consideration. Yes, to qualify right. for awards. Right. Um, having said that, um, it it was at Sundance. Yep. They played the whole thing at Sundance and try back in one at, sitting. Yeah. Oh no, no, they played it in two parts. Yep. Um, at Sundance, they played the first three parts in one sitting. We had a break, and then they played the last two. Um, at Tribeca, it was one long day. They had intermissions after part two, intermissions of part four. How was it received? It was great. Yeah. I mean, that the, the day at Tribeca especially, because it was um, consistent, no one left the theater. Yeah. And so it turned into this very communal thing where mm-hmm. people would come out intermission and talk about what they'd seen and they went back for more. I do think you clearly have to prepare yourself if you're going to a movie theater. For seven where hours, at, sure. Yeah, it's like it's light at the beginning and it's dark when you leave. Um, but I, you know, for me, it made me realize that as much as I conceive this as one story and yeah. one documentary, which I did, you know, I'm also smart enough to know that who the fuck has time to sit and watch something for seven hours and 45 minutes. But that people responded and sat in their chairs and were actually engaged made me realize, no, this is actually how it should be seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, who the fuck doesn't want their movies shown in the theater? Mm-hmm. I mean, and so like when I've, I've been out here for a few weeks and it was playing at the Lemley's in Santa Monica. And I popped in because it's great to just like check yeah, out and sure. see. And so that was a trip for me. 
yes, there's a you know it's being it put was put in the theater for that reason. No, I, mean, I wasn't trying to no yeah, get you defensive. You know, you, you'd be allowed. <laughs> That's fine. I, I'm I'm unco- I'm uncomfortable with the whole thing. It's fine. I understand. I, I just like having my movie in theaters. Why wouldn't you? And and I and it deserves to be in theaters. And this should make you comfortable. I I thought it was incredible. I, oh, I you. really you know was it it it, it was completely provocative completely engaging uh jarring uh educational it made you confront your own sense of of morality and and self uh and you know who you were in relation to this information and this event or series of events good stuff man thank you mark i'm telling you folks it's not just about oj you got to watch this thing. It'll it'll blow your mind. Underground comics, as I used to call them when I was a kid, were some of my you know first portals, you know, into the grown up world, into the world of sex, into the world of drugs, into the world of just basic neurotic insanity. When I was young, when I was in junior high, you know, seeing uh, you know R. Crumb stuff, the fabulous furry freak brothers, all the Zap stuff, seeing how a penis actually went into a vagina the actual logistics of it, saw that first in an underground comic. And part of the legacy of these original underground comic artists, obviously, moving through Zap and through Fanagraphics, this guy who I'm about to talk to, Daniel Klaus, is uh, really, really one of the greatest. And uh, his most recent graphic novel is called Patience. You can get that wherever you get books or through Fantagraphics.com. So right now, I'm going to engage with uh, the genius that is Daniel Klaus. So your dad went to India and he came back. Yeah, I I don't know when. Why did he go? It was like something for somebody he was working with had some deal going on there, and the it, was some, deal. it was some shady deal <laughs> that my dad was involved in. What did he do? That you know, guy, my dad. You know, he was a uh, he was he was a really brilliant guy who got a like a PhD in engineering. Yeah, from the University of Chicago. Yeah, and then accidentally got my my teenage mom pregnant, and had to go work in the steel mill. So he was one of the like a, he was like a character out of a movie, like super smart guy working in the steel mill. Uh, yeah, just a guy that uh, one one misstep. One, one, yeah, one and, like frat, frat house party, you know, gone too far. That was it? My mom, yeah, my mom lived two doors away from the frat house. And she wandered over. I don't know. I don't want to know the detail. <laughs> <laughs> really? I do not want to. So like he was on a, he was on a, uh, a trajectory to be a, an engineer. And then he's like, yeah. well, now I got responsibility. Now I'm at the steel mill. Now I'm a, a family yeah. man. Right. And that's where he, he, that's where he did his work all the way through. Still yeah, mill? no. He, uh, my parents divorced. They were they were like the uh, the vanguard of divorced parents. You know, what, what year was this? Sixty two. Oh. I was born in sixty one. They waited one more year. Yeah. I once asked my mom, like, why was I born? Like, you guys were like just really arguing and stuff. And my mom said, you know, we used like four different kinds of birth control. <laughs> and I was like, all right. Like, I was like the little guy who made it through. <laughs> yeah. Persistent. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You, so. Uh, yeah, so they just, you know, they got divorced, and then he quit the steel mill. And, and then uh, just I, he random was, things guy? He was, uh, he wanted, he was a brilliant guy. He wanted to make uh, his own stuff. So he, yeah. he uh, at one point, he made his own race car that was 
at the high highest level that actually was like raced in Indy five not Indy five uh, NASCAR yeah. type races. Really? Yeah. He built a race car. He built a race car like from scratch. Like, so you would go over there and there'd be cars and parts car, and my, things my, up on lifts. Well, it's very com. My mom left him mm-hmm. for his driver. His like dr- he he built the car and he had a guy who was like his oh, driver sure, sure, in yeah. races and she left him for the driver. She and the driver opened a uh, garage <laughs> yeah. that repaired foreign cars on yeah. the south side of Chicago. Oh, yeah. And then the driver, my stepdad, died in a race in like 1966 when I was five years old. So my mom is now like running a shop on the south side of Chicago. An that auto was, repair shop. Yeah. So my whole childhood is cars. Grease. Yeah, grease. So, yeah, and I don't even know how a car works. I was just like, it's like, you know, if your dad's an accountant, you're yeah. like, I don't want to, I don't care. Oh, so you get like just those steel drums full of oil? <laughs> yeah. That, oh, yeah. It was all that. The you know? rags, the yeah. tools. You know, yeah. Dubious that, men. <laughs> very dubious <laughs> men. It was. Uh, <laughs> it was a lot of you know, like I, I mean, I have a childhood memory of like eating, eating like a giant, you know, some kind of wire that was used for, uh, for you know, some kind of repair thing, and I was like, "Mom, I ate this wire," and they're like, "Oh shit, you, you know, ate now, the wire." Yeah, now we have to go to the hospital. Kid ate the wire. I uh, uh, did they get it out? No, I think I think it's still in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like shows, lodged. Shows up in the part uh, of the, the, bio- auto, the biology, the screening. Yeah. Well, yeah, I had a grandfather who owned a hardware store, and there was always this crew of men, you know, these old dudes right. hanging around talking about yeah. stuff, and it was like uh, I always uh, was very impressed. Yeah, yeah. You know, they they all seem to have lives. It's a weird thing about having people that do those kind of professions in your life, or just have those kind of you know, dudes around. And when who know how to do like practical things. Yeah, where yeah. Like, no, no, you don't use, you use like the duct tape sure. for the pipe fittings. Exactly. And, you know. Is that soldered? What? Right. And you're like, uh uh-huh. <laughs> can you do it? <laughs> like when, and then when you're an adult and you, you have a home, you know, you start to be taught that stuff and you're like, right. oh, I had no idea that that's how the, you know, when you just put basic plumbing, right. you gotta have that tape, right. that uh, silicone tape right. in there right. so it'll seal it. Right. And it's I'm, like a miracle to you. I'm only at the, finally at the age where I sort of get like, oh yeah, your house has all these pipes and tubes and <laughs> like, it was just a miracle before that. So you plug it in and it works. Right. You know? oh, yeah. and now I'm like, oh, there's like the wiring. That, right. Somebody figured that out. They figured that out. Not yeah. only that, when something goes wrong, when you own your own house, there's that moment like, nah, I hope someone fixes it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, Where's the landlord? Yeah, exactly. Oh, shit. shit, that's me. <laughs> God damn it. Where do you... <laughs> I've got, like, I keep looking at these trees as they start. It's going to take a branch to enter my home before I'm like, I guess I got <laughs> to right. call gotta a guy. Call a tree trimmer. Yeah, come do that. Right. Yeah. Well, where where did you, uh... so you grew up all in Chicago? I grew up on the south side of Chicago, yeah. So you're a Chicago guy all through, through Pretty and through. Pretty, well, now I consider myself a Californian. I've been here 24 years. But Chicago's like, like only in recent years have I grown to appreciate that that is one of the great cities that has its own tone, its own sort of um, sense of uh, identity. Like there aren't that many cities that have that in this it's country. True. Yeah, it's true. But like Chicago is definitely its own thing. And yeah. the people that come from there are, are Chicagoan. Yeah. <laughs> no, you, know. you can, I mean, I often I'll uh, like be out here in California and I hear somebody's voice and I'll go like, what? part yeah. of Andersonville in Chicago did you grow up you know you <laughs> yeah. can pinpoint it 
you grew up, you're two years uh, older than me, so we kind of had the same stuff coming at us in a way, culturally. Yes. I, but I didn't, um, did you have brothers and sisters? I have a older brother. That was that. That was what caused my parents to get married. Oh, he was the guy. How? What's the, what's the age difference? He's 10 years older. Oh, so you had yeah. a portal. You had a portal in. Yes. That guy was well into it. Oh yeah, he he got all the brunt of it. I was I escaped, you know. But so but you had like you had the if he was so 10 years older, so that means like so you're born 61, so He's he was 51, yeah. So you right. So like by the time the late 60s come around, you were living with it. Oh yeah, completely. The, what a gift. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because like there's something about like you know when like when I read um like going through your stuff uh like I have not been uh, I was compulsive about graphic novels and, and about you know the the world of comics that you come from you know years ago. Sure. Like I read The Eight Ball sure. and I read you know Bag and I read uh, Burns and like you know all the all the guys that were doing that stuff and I was a Crumb fan. <coughs> To a, to a certain extent, obviously, when I was a kid, but sure. I kind of missed that. Right. But uh, but so it was all very important to me. So I'm going through this stuff, like, you know, looking at eight balls again. I'm like, I read all this once. Oh, you yeah. know, like, you it's know, a, like it's a part of my capsule. life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the new book is great. Uh, the new novel is, is great. I don't know how to I'll refer to them. Is it a graphic novel yeah, or a novel? Yeah, we hate that word, but we use it. The graphic yeah, novel? Yeah, it's a graphic novel. What would you rather call it? I, see, that's a problem. We all like, oh, that word is stupid. It's a but comic? then we can't come up with a better... Yeah, I would just say a comic. But right. Then, but then people think it's the you know the floppy kind of comic. So Right. Well, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> like, you know, in a way, it's good we don't have a good word. You know, once you have a word that defines you, like my generation of comics, we weren't underground. We were. We never had a good word for us. So that's why we can still do comics. If we were, if we had a name for us, like the postmodernists, or, right, right, we'd be done. We just like, oh, they were done. You know, <laughs> right, it's over. But, but we're it's still. Over. But we have no name. But when um. But when you started, I like I have to like because I was never I never came to comics through Marvel or through any of right. that shit. It was not my means of escape. I just right. didn't I didn't have it. So by the when I came into comics when I was a, in junior high, it was like a rack at a head shop. So it was there yes. was that you know the rack of yeah. uh, you know for the Freak Brothers, right. Crumb, right. Uh, dope comics, dope and, comics, yeah. and all, High Times in the back. Yeah. And I used to love. Uh, the Lampoon, the stuff that they used to run, Absolutely. you know, Von Bodie, is that his name? Yep. And uh, who was the other guy that did the weird ones? <laughs> that, it wasn't Gahan Wilson, but there was another dude who had a real vibe to him in Lampoon. I can't remember. That stuff just, you know, blew my mind. Yeah, that was my big influence, all that stuff. Yeah, I like remember. who specifically and when? National Lampoon, you know, there was there's a woman named M.K. Brown. Who That's her. Be, yeah, she's incredible. That, that shit was like the best. Yeah, she was so unappreciated and just like so ahead of her time. I didn't even know it was a woman. Yeah, yeah. But that's the yeah, one. Yeah, Kate Brown, yeah. She's she did those around. weird kind of float. They were almost, all the characters almost yeah, they're seemed always like kind of floating. floating. And they yeah. have this really beautiful dialogue and it's real. It's like a Beckett play or right, something. Really right, right. really good. What was her story? She, you know, was a big deal when Lampoon came around and then when, when Lampoon ended all these great artists like did there was nowhere to go you know yeah. like my world of comics hadn't been invented yet so right. there was the undergrounds and they weren't quite that you know they were right. they were not in that so they didn't ever fit into that world so they just all wound up doing like children's books things like that you know just illustrations things like that there was it's, no world it's it's weirdly it's interesting to me that that there is that once you you learn this craft yeah the the craft of art and layout and all that stuff yeah, yeah. that on some level 
a, a lot of comic artists are, are designers to a degree, right? You got to be everything. You Graphic be artists. 15 different things to do it. So like, it's just interesting that, you know, if you have an outlet like you have or like MK Brown did in the 70s where you, you can really express yourself and, 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 and create a tone and, and, you know, deal with existential issues, <laughs> you know, which seems to be the real theme of underground comics. Pretty you know, much, yeah. Outside of drugs and pirates and <laughs> right. space travel. right. right. <laughs> That you know the this, right. the 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 I think the what the guys at Zap laid down was sort of a template, right? Sure. In Mad Magazine, to yeah, Mad degree. Mad certainly was the beginning of it all, right? And but like M. K. Brown, like the thought that she could just go and do greeting cards or children's books, right? It's like, but what about the great what about floating all that weirdness? Stuff? Yeah, Where's I the, know. Where bring it back? Yeah. yeah. So so when did you realize it? Because you're in this environment where you're hanging out at. What auto repair shops and what do you <laughs> <laughs> sitting on the floor? I was re- car my, parts around. That was, that was the beauty of having the the ten year older brother is that he just you know he became a hippie and it's like here's my comics. He just like left me. I moved into his room when he. But like, what kind of hippie home. was he? Like a peace and love hippie or just no, a no, drug he was, hippie? He was a drug hippie. <laughs> 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 he was he was way you know way into the world of it. You so know? it was so, like because there, there was that like you know there was the invention of the hippies which actually had right. so social purpose and right. then there was everyone no, like well we can fuck and smoke pot yeah, and do I, acid. I never heard any of the peace and love <laughs> no it was just home. rock and roll yeah, and just, yeah it was just like all right can you know was he uh like a a, a good guy or a bad guy he's a good guy he's yeah. a good guy but still he, around but yeah he's still around but it was you know he had a lot of tough tough years because of that era and just what was, happened just you know he got into drugs and stuff yeah. you know and it was just like uh you know my parents were they were the they were the proto seventies parents who were just like it's you know live on the street and you know live life and you know we're, well, they were we're, supportive of it in a way yeah yeah in a way like they were just not they didn't they didn't hands parent. off they were hands off <laughs> they were hands you know what you know now that I I'm a parent you know it's like for years I just thought that's fine and then now I look back and all the parents of that era and they're like what the fuck were they doing no they were well they they my parents were the same way because mm-hmm. they were they. Whatever they came from or whatever they right. thought it was supposed to be had shifted. Right. So they were in this identity crisis they as were adults. Like, what do we do? Yeah. And they were like, we got to like divorce and right. get married. And find and ourselves. Find and, ourselves yeah. and just every. Everyone can party now. It was. You, but, you mean we can just have sex and yeah. get divorced? Yeah. It's like, like, yeah, yeah. Kids will be fine. Yeah. Yeah. They're all right. <laughs> they're okay. Look, Look at them. They're happy. Right. He dressed himself. <laughs> Let him go outside. <laughs> Oh man! Because like uh, there was like that element of sort of like I remember when I was a kid, you just wandered and and it was okay. But like when I was eight, yeah. like I'm going to take the bus to yeah, the thing. Oh, oh, it's like four buses to the comic store. Right, and I would get all the time get like beaten up and just all kinds of horrible things happened to me. That if it was my son, I'd be horrified. You wouldn't right let now. your kid get on a bus. Never at eleven. Never at would, eleven years old. Or I would whatever. turn myself into the police if I ever did that. <laughs> <laughs> but you could do it when we were kids. It's yeah. weird because on some level, weird. the environment was... It was even worse then, too. It was more dangerous. It was worse, but it, I don't know. They're, they're, the the kind of um, isolation and moral bankruptcy that is upon us because <laughs> of you know technological advances yes. has become a, a problematic. There's it's, a lot of people sitting at home looking at things all day long that they shouldn't, and it, it does have an effect. It's, oh, without a doubt. I yeah. Mean, 
Yeah. Yeah, they go out into the world and they're like, I'm still in the thing. Yeah, yeah. right. I'm in the shooting <laughs> game. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> whatever sex it is. Or, yeah. Right. I, I believe that it, it, it does sort of, you know, fuck you up. It's, it's well, especially sort of, when virtual reality hits, we're yeah. going to be in such a scary world. <laughs> you know, yeah, people are going to be wandering around Just with their like glasses I'm still on. in the, yeah. 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 Well, there's something to do that because like, like in thinking about... <clears throat> Those early comics, like this stuff, um, you know, that Crumb was doing, and and uh, and my experience with those Zap comics was, and I've talked about this a little bit before. That's the first time I saw sex. This is the yes, first time me, I, I, I understood how it worked, where it went well, in. Like you know, I like, don't know if they had it right. <laughs> I'm not talking about intimacy and love, but like yeah, but just I, the apparatus. No, I mean, just of even it. that part, I was a little. It was like, what the hell am I looking? Well, at? There, well, there was a, one panel that I remember in the uh, like. I went out and bought the book. It was the history of underground comics. Yeah, yeah. That sure. the B. Dalton booksellers. Yes, yes I remember. That. And there was a, a once. I think it was Spain Rodriguez piece in the middle where it was a, a cosmos thing. It was like just two. Uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. They're yeah, connected. They're yeah, fucking. Yeah, yeah. Right, I'm right. Like, That's where it goes. Like that. I just goes got it. <laughs> <laughs> But it blew my mind. I mean, it like changed me forever. I remember learning the word blowjob from a S. Clay Wilson comic. Oh and, yeah, and going like, what is that? Like, I, you know, of course you go like, why would you blow? It makes right. like it doesn't just make staying up all night. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, it took that a lot of clearing and, up and asking all my friends. Yeah. And they're like, I have never heard that. I and then there was no the one idea. idiot that never had one, but said that you did. They do blow. You know, <laughs> right, like, right, yeah, right. You're like, what? Really? And yeah, yeah. Made up some story. Yeah, it right. really feels really good. Yeah, it pours bubbles. It's happened to me many times. Yeah, even though I'm eleven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like you had all these like you, know, you must have like w- weird hippie girls and freaks coming into the house all the time just wandering oh, around was, literally i'd be like home reading my dc comics <laughs> yeah. and like a naked man would just wander through my room <laughs> it was that kind of world lost <laughs> like on a acid. strange naked man <laughs> yeah he's lost because he, right. he no longer knows where the room down the hall is <laughs> I, I have this vivid memory of my brother and all his friends really stoned watching leave it to beaver like, yeah in reruns it'd be like 1969 or so and every word that was said on the show they were like <laughs> like just cracking out and i was like why is that funny you know, it's like, they're just yelling at eddie or what you know it's not funny and they were just like cracking up <laughs> and that's when he knew something else was, was happening and when i knew like i don't want to ever use drugs yeah, oh that really did and <laughs> oh, you yeah. didn't never did because never. of that because well of I, I had a lot a lot of other experiences that made me think like i i don't want to like relinquish my brain power right that, right right i really saw it affect people in ways that made them unpleasant yeah so but it, it's sort of interesting too that like uh like somehow or another the way even in the in your early artwork that there was something i don't it, that the time the tone of the time that you created even in its surrealness was something not nostalgic but definitely not psychedelic like no, there, it no. seems to be rooted in in a, almost a, a 50s motif is that possible i was certainly yeah i mean i think i was so kind of traumatized by the 60s and growing up in that world that yeah. i was like i want to go back to like 1961 right before it all fell apart and uh-huh. like re rethink life from that point on i really think that was my, a conscious decision i think it's sort of unconscious but i go, when i look back on my work it's very clear that's what i was doing i was like going back before all the all the craziness hit my life to try to like okay let's say everything was fine and we lived a normal life from that point on well that's well that makes a lot of sense because wh- what that did and i was noticing th- this this morning what that did is it, it put a lot of weight on the characters to carry the 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 weirdness of humanity that they were, you, you know, 
<laughs> like you I know, feel guilty about. It. Well, no, no, but yeah, you know, no, you know what I mean. mean like yeah. if you had these settings and you had these people that were sort of dressing even in bits and pieces of different eras, that's you true. Know, trying yeah. to make sense of 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 the identity you were creating for them, right. but underneath it was usually this kind of it's not even it's not carbuncled, but there was, <laughs> right. but there was an awkwardness right. to 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 everyone in right. their attempts to put themselves together. And well, yeah, I think you're right. They're all going, "Why did he make me do this?" <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? He set me up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a chess piece. It's like, why are you putting me out in the middle of the just, board? Just I'm, to mock I'm me. Gonna, I'm going to be a, a, crushed it was, immediately. It was hard enough when I was just a thought. <laughs> That's right. But look, now I have to wear this. Well, do you ever, like, do you think about where, you know, uh, you know outside of, you know, the crumb influence that, you know, that sort of window into humanity where, you know, the weight of discomfort is is personified all the time. Where is that something you, you manifest because of, your, of yourself? I, I'm just talking, I think, thinking I out think loud. I bo- yeah, I bore that myself. You know, I was I was trying to get out all the, you know, all the inner turmoil that I had on, you know, hoping I could exercise it in some way. Of course, that never works. It's not... Right. Art, it art is not good therapy at all. You don't think so? I don't know. How do you find it is? Like Well, I the, the you, problem with art being therapy is that, you know, <clears throat> once you resolve some of the fundamental issues that needed relief, you know, then you're in a a pattern. So so when the next sort of turn has to happen for you personally, you know, the courage required to do that uh is 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 harder than it was when it was desperate. Yeah, does that know, make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. Because, like, you know, it's it's like saying to you, like, you know, like this new book, uh, Patience, is is great. It, it seems to be a, a lot of what you were working towards, and all the themes are there. You know, including a more uh, uh, sort of thorough science fiction element. Than well, I maybe, think, yeah, I don't. Then, that's then, debatable. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm not saying that it, it was technologically possible. Okay, but okay. but but as a a real thread through the theme of the right, book, right. I don't know that I'd seen that before. But you know, you've done right, a lot right. of work that I, I'm yeah, sure yeah. I missed. But but you know when when it, like if someone were to say to you like why don't you do a thing about your kid and you know in the life at home right. he's like no oh, yeah I have to <laughs> live can, that yeah <laughs> I, I, I need to get out I could do it but I would have to make it about something that's not that at all right you know, oh that's and, right you know I, sub uh, sublimate is that it sublimate it you sure yeah but uh, but at the beginning this story the idea that because like almost it's a theme on this podcast where you know I talk about you know who who guided you, the older brother right, that, right. you know, that, that you were able at that point to say, like, I'll take the comics, but, but not the rest of this. That's right. Yeah, that's that, right. You know, even the music to some degree was sort of like, because it's usually yeah. about music where yeah, you're, yeah. you're kind of like, thank God for the records. But, right. but it seems like you sort of turned your back no, on the 60s thing. <laughs> completely turned my back on all that. Because it was it, too well, chaotic? What do you too think? Too chaotic. And the, well, in the comics that I was left in that yeah. room were, I felt, and I didn't figure this out till years later, but I felt like this is like the weird record of the bad years that I missed. You know, I missed all the bad years with the parents that my right. poor brother had to endure. Uh-huh. And that, all those comics were from those 10 or 12 years. And I thought, he's that's not something we're ever going to really talk about. That know? was his ticket out, you thought? Like, this is how he well, got Well, it was relief. like, it was almost, yeah, it was that, but it was also like... I'm, here's the story that you missed in these comics. And oh, I would, really? I would read these comics. This is before I could read, actually. Yeah. I'd read the comics, and I would look at them, and, and they were all just these weird 60s comics where all this crazy stuff is happening, and the images are all 
you know, they, they were comics done by like guys with PTSD who'd come out of World War II and they're just filled with crazy. Like what? You know, like just just like um, still a lot of similar stuff to in my book, Patience, where there's people whose like flesh is exploding and just oh, right, right, crazy right. like yeah, yeah, body yeah. dysmorphia and stuff that's, you know, they're just the guys hacking out comics. They're not thinking about it. But right. this is coming from their psyche. And it was something about like it was an expression of this like post-war PTSD, these characters who were our dads basically yeah. drawing yeah. these. And it's what led to like my brother being a hippie, you know, is like that kind of disconnect. Right, the next right. generation is like, I don't want to be like these cranky old men who are lost in their own weird world. Yeah. I want to be free and love and no war and none of that, you know. And, right, right. And so, so the comics feel to me like this perfect expression of that. Like you know? a tormented generational cry for help yes. that couldn't be articulated. It, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember specific images and stuff that like, like that kind of blew you away and said like, you know, this this is how I want to express myself? So there's so many, I mean, it's, you can't even articulate, you know, just there were images like where Superman would turn into like a devil and have an evil devilish sneer. And, right. And, you know, like I remember there's one where uh, Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal, has this uh, contraption he puts on his head that's called the Helmet of Hate. And he becomes like this hate monger, Hitler type guy. Yeah. And just stuff like that. You know, who could think of that? But so those those are almost like they're almost passing moments. Like you know, oh, they're could, all they're it all could be individual. Like one panel. It's all one panel. It's not the stories themselves are all cobbled together. But those single panels where you're like, what the fuck? right, right, and that could have been one of that guy's the artist's bad days. Yes, you know, yeah. like, like so you were yeah. you were actually so you were you were ex, you extrapolating you know, emotionally these moments that didn't quite add up and that were too you know surreal and aggressive. To, to really right. make any sense on some right. level. But that had, you know, more power, more uh, visceral impact than like any the story uh, any anything. other work of art, though. Like, that, like as individual things yeah. hit me like, oh my, you know, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is right. Because this guy is not quite aware of what he's doing. He's just sending this straight from the back of his <laughs> reptile brain right, right. onto the page into my little brain. <laughs> <laughs> There's one there's one guy I got really obsessed with in the last couple of years who uh, this guy named Bob Powell who did these horror comics in the in the 50s and yeah. every single one of them practically is about some creepy little like homunculus guy who's like a mad scientist or like a normal scientist yeah, yeah. who's got a beautiful distant icy assistant like a female assistant and he's trying to create some creepy monster to either like imprison her or impress her yeah and of course she's just like repelled by him to the very end and then he just destroys her with this like wall of flesh or what and just every story is like that and you're like why wasn't this guy arrested <laughs> uh, did you but see now when you when you made all these assumptions Wait a minute. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, but no, like, know. you know, what, what you're, yeah. what you were experiencing right. and, and how you historically contextualize right. it, that, you know, that this was a generational thing and that yeah. comics were different and these guys. I, and to be clear, I did not think of this at eight years old. This was, no, I know. Yeah, I know. But did, yeah. did you, do, do you, uh, did, have you gotten any sort of validation on that? Have you met some of these guys or do you, did you learn more about them? And Oh yeah. 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 And you know, a lot of them weren't, like, some of them were GIs, you know, some of them really saw like heavy duty combat. Yeah. A lot of them didn't. A lot of them, you know, were wimpy artists right. who got out of it somehow. But just the that generation, sure, you know, just yeah. that, even the guilt of not doing that, I think, 
And that's interesting. The, the sort of like the strange, you know, uh, noise of humanity that gave birth to the 60s wasn't just a political thing, that there was something teeming at the core of that. How, right. and, and now that you talk about it, how could it not? Of course. I mean, I mean everybody's just sort of like the, the greatest generation. Could you imagine being at fucking D-Day? Or like at any, like, you know, taking one of those beaches, like just. Well, and you, it's not like you'd just come home and be like, I'm now a normal dad in the in the no. 50s. You'd just be so, you know, and you couldn't talk to anybody PTSD has existed since warfare. It just wasn't right. diagnosed as that. It's like he's right. a little shell-shocked, you know. It's like he's right. talking to the curb. You know, like it's, <laughs> like the culture just absorbed it somehow. Right. And it, I, I realized at a certain point, all the stuff I'm sort of drawn to is comes out of that. Like, uh, like film noir yeah. is obviously that, right? You know, the guys coming back and they're these haunted, broken men, right? You know, and yeah, so it's yeah, all, yeah. It's, that so clearly leads to the '60s, to which leads to my thing. You know, so it, you were able to sort of like, so that's interesting because in the way you're talking about it, and the way that you constructed some of the early comics, that that there was an element of 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 time travel that that happened all at once that you had these characters that were seeking an identity right you know outside of the 60s and and part of the 50s like because i think that like uh you know ghost world and and eight ball to some degree actually helped define what became post-punk culture in a way yeah on a fashion right, yeah. level yeah you know what i mean like sure, you, yeah you didn't see a lot of that like you like you probably are somewhat responsible for for young uh you know women who shopped at thrift stores to to decide that those those glasses that their grandmothers wore were right. like oh these are pretty cool well certainly they they existed but i you know i think i gave them the character that they'd be like oh yeah i'm that you know that's my right. my identity is in that realm you, you, know? you made them feel less alone and then more people did it <laughs> right and now and now warby parker is making a fortune <laughs> yeah they are i've advertised them <laughs> So what what where did you learn how to do the 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 craft? That was all you know trial and error really. When I was uh, when I was about thirteen, uh, that I don't know maybe first year of high school, I realized I don't have any friends. What am I going to do? So I was like, I, I guess I'll stay home in my room and draw comics all day. That was it was like that was my way of communicating with the world, even though nobody read them. Right. But did you feel like because I imagine being in high school at that time. What are we talking about? The early seventies? Yeah, seven. Yeah, seventy. We were just all you know, bell bottoms and rock and roll, yeah. and like you know, that like was very Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah. And I hated all that stuff so much. Really? So much. So much. <laughs> I was so. I was like the guy punk was made for because I because it was destructive of all the stuff I hated. Not that I even really liked. Do you remember when that happened? That when, I would, punk, I, when you got your first punk record? Well, I remember I remember when I learned about it. There used to be a TV show that was every like third week instead of Saturday Night Live, there was a show called Weekend with Lloyd Dobbins in mm-hmm. the 60s and uh, 70s. Nobody mm-hmm. remembers this. And he had an episode about like the punk rock scourge of England. And I watched it, and I was, like, terrified. I was like, oh, my God, these people are horrible. You know, what horrible, horrible monsters. And then, like, two weeks later, I was like, I kind of want one of those records. <laughs> like, I, all of a sudden, it seemed really appealing to me, and that's what got me into it. Well, it's the same. It, it seems like the same fascination that you, you got from those comics yeah. that where you were able to see past the uh, the, the terrifying into this right. kind of, like, this seems pretty reasonable. Maybe, maybe I should join them. Yeah. <laughs> And do, do you remember the first punk record? For it was the first Ramones record. Oh, yeah. that did it. Yeah, and yeah. you were like, ah, finally, I have a voice. But I never. The, the trouble was that was that's still my favorite one. Like I never got 
found anything I liked as much as that. I spent like five years like, okay, there's going to be another, you know, and that was. No, they were they were the best and nobody else came close. But you were able to, uh, did you at least when you were going home and making your comics, what were those about? Were they uh, attacks on, was it uh, you teaching a lesson to those who roam the halls? They were some of that. There were some of that. There was, you know, I'd, I'd do really mean caricatures of my teachers and yeah. stuff like that. And uh, one year we had this like big art show in school where you're, you know, you're supposed to show your art on the school walls. And so I cut out all my mean drawings of teachers and yeah. students and glued them on this big piece of cardboard and turned that in. And it was like in the era of the 70s where every, all the teachers had to go like, that's really great. You're really creative. But yeah. then like from then on, all my grades like plummeted. Really? Like they were literally like, everybody was like, fuck him, you know, but they but they had to be really supportive. Like your drawings are great. I love that um, that 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 it was that there was an element of uh, that you were fueled by a certain spite. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I kind of was gaming the system. It's like I knew everybody would have to be supportive, and it was exactly the kind of thing they didn't want anybody to ever do. You know, right. They and just wanted, like, your photos of flowers. So you get to whatever. laugh, the sinister laugh yeah. of a guy that won. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Won, a, won a hollow victory that led to nothing. <laughs> No, are you kidding? It, it led to uh, to you realizing the power of uh, of the comic. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, I like I noticed that about like even when you watch uh, the the Crumb documentary that Zweigoff did, you, yeah. you know, and you went on to work with him. But that there was such you know he was he's such a you know a, a quiet you know thoughtful, incredibly brilliant, festering guy. Right. And and he was able just to you know <laughs> to you know destroy the world. Sure, with his comics. Oh yeah, and and that he was a very passive aggressive guy too, and and he was able to become just purely aggressive in a way. Yeah, yeah. and and just do it all. Yeah, and, yeah, and 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 actually change the way people looked at shit. Yeah, yeah, it, and that's a that's an amazing um, uh, uh, it's outlet. A, it's a feat. Yeah. So where did you uh, you know learn to do art? I mean, did you you left Chicago right and you went? I went to art school, but I can't say I really learned how to do art there. I I learned it from studying other artists and just copying and doing and just working. Where'd you go to art own. school? New I York. Went to Pratt in New York. Yeah, for the full run. Yeah, full run. Back, I had a scholarship, and so it was literally just like, well, here's a four year break in my life where I don't have to get a job. You but know, from Chicago to New York, did you yeah. like? Did you love New York? Oh yeah. I mean, I could. I was like. That's the main reason I went to art school, because I could not wait to go to New York. You what know, year was that? 79. All right, so it was before it got, you know, uh, it was still kind oh, of dirty still, and It was horrible. still taxi driver-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. First time I, I was like, I'm going to go to Times Square, and I got out and got mugged within like five minutes. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh. I just like immediately saw the, I was such a rube. Look, there's the Midwest. <laughs> there's the kid, you know, yeah, yeah. with an open stare. It looks like he's 14 gawking at the, you know, porn theaters. Yeah. Guy just immediately came over and was just like, give me your tokens. I was like, I don't have any tokens. I just got <laughs> <laughs> Tokens? Yeah, for subway, the subway, subway oh, yeah. token. Yeah. Oh, the old subway tokens. Yeah. 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 So what, did, were you able to, uh, to get, go see the Ramones? I did. I did. Yeah. Was that great? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was mind-boggling. Were it CBGBs? No, it was at they were Ir- Irving that. Plaza. Yeah, they weren't. They were bigger by '79. They were too yeah, big oh for yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. They so you, did, did you go to a lot of shows? Yeah, you, yeah. Did you become part of that culture a bit? No, I was always too solitary and contrary to you know. I would any scene I was involved in, I would become like. Uh, you know, contrary within that scene. So then I became, it, it's a real, it's, you winnow yourself down to having no possibilities, basically. <laughs> <laughs> 
What do you track that to? <laughs> I don't know. That, that I think it's just a good. It's a good policy. I think yeah. you don't have to deal with uh, other people's uh, expectations or yeah. needs or like judgment. I just well, I remember as a kid, like I was a huge baseball fan as a kid, but my dad would never take me to a game, and I was just oh, I want to go to a game really bad. So finally. When I was like 12, my dad took me to a Cubs game in Chicago, and I couldn't have been more excited. And I got there, and then all the people around me were just these, like, drunk, fat guys. And I was like, oh, I don't want to be part of this community. Like, I just remember <laughs> thinking, like, oh, I don't want to ever go to a game again. <laughs> like, it was just such a such a letdown. Well, that's interesting because so many, and this is like, I mean, an easy connection, but so many of your characters are kind of pathological outsiders. <laughs> they're just, yeah. they're kind of like... You know, emotionally or physically, you know, hobbled <laughs> in terms of like ha- having any chance to integrate. Yeah, yeah. Into into society. Those are my people. <laughs> how does that happen? How do you get? How do you develop a relationship with these characters once you you kind of summon them? Well, that's that's the that's that's the hard part. I mean, I, I have to spend a lot of time with them before I ever draw them. And Is that to, true? Really? Yeah. After you know, once they they emerge kind of unbidden you know it's almost just like they're conjured from the flames or something and you have this character you know what they look like you kind of know what their their vibe is but then all of a sudden the more you think it over the more you think it through they start to come alive and then when you start to draw them then they really are like a re- it's they have to be real like i have to feel like i'm transcribing these real people's lives does your relationship with the characters once you build it determine how much they're going to show up or how much you commit to them it's really you know what what good are they to me you know are they going to are they going to keep me entertained or are they going to have an interesting story you know i don't i want to draw characters just doing like brushing their teeth for no reason you know i i want them to be in their most dramatic, interesting moments. And there's something about the way, like, I think you and um, <clears throat> the ones that I really noticed, and I think it's because I grew up at the same time as you, and that there was, and, and, I, and I can't really put my finger on it because there's a poetry to it that, that, that is hard to describe, but, you know, is his name Charles Burns? Charles Burns, yeah, sure. That, you know, that those, um, the black hole stuff. Yes. That there's, a, there's, there's an area of, 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 creepiness and 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 moral uh, slipperiness yes to to just it's almost like a like a towny thing right that there there's an right. element to these people right. that they they're not they don't look like they live in cities they don't look like they live in anywhere but they're right. completely relatable in the sense that it it almost all feels like when you see somebody that is resonating something even if they're just walking by you sure that you're like oh that's that's all it of has it. a vibe yeah and that you guys seem to live in that vibe into some I'm, degree. I'm, I'm certainly very aware of those people in the real world. You know, you see somebody in the airport that yeah. just has this singular vibe to them, and you immediately are like, okay, this, you know, this guy is one of my characters. Yeah. You know, yeah I feel that all the time. And, and, like, I could project into him some great story just, like, by what he's giving off, that right, uncomfortable, just, weird feeling right. that he's got or yeah. something else. The guy in the sweatpants cutoffs or whatever right. with, like, his right. belly out and, you know, the, the wrong hat on. Yeah. Like or, it, and it could even be, like, a t- completely normal-looking person that just has some kind of an uncomfortable 
thing about them or, or just something that they're giving off that's like they're hiding something or they're you often see people who just have a naturally anguished expression yeah you know their their yeah. their brow is knitted you know yeah, you're yeah. like what's that all you know it's like it's <laughs> why would you grow up where that's like your resting face is is to look like you're you know you're being terrified by like a <laughs> giant spider in a cave or something <laughs> And there you go. There's your comic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what, uh, what, when was the, uh, was it always the intention to, uh, w- was there ever an intention to do just, you know, straight art or was it always to do comics? Oh, well, I always wanted to do comics, but I always, I didn't want to write my own comics when I started. I just, the part I enjoy still is the drawing yeah. part. Like that's, I was thinking of myself as a drawer. And I used to try to find people to write stories for me. And I'd, you know, like, you're a smart guy, write a comic story. And, you know, nobody, it's really hard to do for one thing. And I'd be like, nah, I don't want to draw that. I want to draw this thing I'm thinking. And then I, one day I realized, like, I got to write my own stories. And and you just had the, you know, you, you had the freedom of mind to <laughs> to let them, to let the characters sit sometimes. So like, there, you know, and I think that's a yeah. crumb thing, too, where, you know, it doesn't have to be closure. No. Yeah. <laughs> No, you, you know. have to. There's to be like an emotional thing underlying everything that feels right. You know, it's. I mean, it's probably like doing a comedy set. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Say, you, you know, it has a certain flow to it. And sure. You know, that's the ending, and doesn't yeah. have a narrative necessarily. No, not narrative, but in comedy, yeah. that you know, generally the audience is expecting to be able to go like, I right, that it's done. That's you know, that right, was right. the end. Oh, I get yeah, that it was done. Yeah, yeah there was a punchline there, and, <laughs> right. and things Wait, have that, closure. Is it done? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or did he, he have to go to the bathroom? Yeah, yeah. Well, they, yeah. <laughs> I, I try to explore that a little bit. Like, is, <laughs> right. is it finished? Thank you. So you, you're a comedy fan? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I didn't used to be. It's funny. I remember years ago, uh, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross uh, wrote to me. That's like, you know, 1993 or four. And they were like, we're doing this show for HBO. You know, that's a comedy show. Right. Mr. Show. And, and I was like, I just pictured like two guys in suspenders in front of a brick wall. You yeah, know, yeah, just, yeah. I just thought like... Yeah, I don't want to. Comedy is horrible. I, you know, I just thought of it as that world of comedy that existed in that world. And then, you know, and then when I finally saw the show, I was like, God damn it. Why didn't I do that? Oh, really? <laughs> they felt, wanted you to write? They, no, they wanted me to do the uh, the logo for the oh. show and do like an animated thing. Right, right. And I and I liked that. They seemed cool guys on the phone, but I just had no faith in it. And I'd never seen any of that. Oh, stuff. because your your idea of what comedy was, was that just that, I that was tacky Kind of like comedy, like, like Kip, evening at the Dada. Oh, really? <laughs> like that kind, you know, sure. just that world, you know. Sure. And uh, and I don't know, it just felt old, old fashioned or something. And you'd you'd uh, you'd not kept up. I had not kept up, you know. And and, uh, and I, you know, it, on TV still at that time, it was still the old world of comedy. Sure, pretty much. Sure. And then I started meeting people like Dana Gould and Patton and all. Those yeah, you. Guys. I think you might have invented those people. I think I did. <laughs> I think that you're responsible I just, for I Patton. designed Patton. Yeah. I think you did. Yeah, in On a some laboratory. Level. No, no, I, I really, I you know, I knew Patton when he was very young, uh, you know, probably 22, 23. Yeah. And, um, you know, when he moved to San Francisco, I had just moved there as well. And he was definitely a full-on, you know, comic 
art, you know, morbid culture, sure. weirdo shit, nerd. Yeah, I know. The first time I met him, he was fully formed, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah, and and but like you know, I know you did a did you do a record cover, or a book cover for him, or an I illustration? Did. He had a TV pilot, and I did a thing for that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and you know, so how did how has comedy influenced your work? Stand up. Well, se? you know, I was I was I was thinking how. Um, I, I got really into the structure of a set, you know, uh -huh. of a comedy set sure. and just how, how does that work? And, you know, I, like everybody else, I watched comedy and never thought about it once. Just thought, oh, the guy's telling a bunch of jokes. And then I started to get how it, how it all goes together, how you set up the thing, yeah. how you have the pacing and that, you know, even if I didn't find it funny at all, I got really impressed with comedians who could make that work over over a full set mm -hmm. and, and build up always be funny the callback the callback and just the the like saving your good joke for the right time oh right and just the whole flow of it right to me it was a kind of a beautiful freeform narrative structure that we all kind of know you know we feel it but right. we don't think about it it's storytelling but with with jokes right knowing where that comes right. was there a comic that that you saw that the most with or that you go to you know one guy i think about all the time is Stephen wright sure be because his humor seems like something you couldn't write like you'd have it has to happen to you right like you have and a lot of my writing is like that like you like i can't just sit down and like what's gonna happen like right. it has to it has to appear in, in right. my head and come to me and i can just imagine him sort of being you have to be receptive and i'm sure he's very receptive to that have to be receptive and have a pen and have a pen and, so, and, and some writing uh, paper right. of some kind and i'm kind. sure he works very hard to hone those jokes yeah 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 but they nobody else could sit down and write a stephen wright no set. no no it's completely singular singular what i noticed with uh, before i we don't need to go book to book necessarily but i was looking at wilson before you came over and like some of you guys do this like I know that uh, you know Crumb can, but he he doesn't too much. But like Spiegelman certainly does that. There was a yeah, there was almost sort of like a, a celebration of your ability to do several different comic styles. Yeah, yeah. I, I would like to not think I was just showing off. I mean, I it, no, 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 yeah. no. But I mean, I, I there was intent. Oh yeah, I mean, the, well, what happened was I start. I had that book all written in little tiny like stick figure drawings. Mm -hmm. I, that character just popped into my life one day and all of a sudden I couldn't stop writing based little... on the feeling you had about a real person it was I was actually my my dad was uh dying in the hospital much like Wilson's dad is in the book and I he just did I, I went to sit with him you know this is the end yeah and I thought he's gonna give me like this is you know where this very quiet you know self self-involved man not self-involved self you know self-focused man is right, gonna, he's coming to the end he's coming to the end and now he's going to offer me like the words you know the things he's never said to me he's going to yeah. tell me and it, as i was sitting there i realized like that is so not going to he's in his own thing he doesn't he wants nobody there he just wants to like figure the shit out on yeah. his own and so i was like well what do i and i was like i don't want to like check my phone it seems like disrespectful or so i got out my little sketch pad and i started just i was like i'm going to write a little comic and see if i can amuse myself while you're sitting and next to your dying father. While I'm sitting next to my dying father, I was like, I'm going to do, you know, the, the yin and the yang. I'm going right. to do the opposite. And so I just made up this character, sort of a cranky version of myself based on, like, my traveling that I'd done to get there. And then, the like, three days later, I had done hundreds of these. I mean, I just couldn't stop doing these little 
doodles. Uh-huh. And then I went home and I'd been working on this big, ambitious graphic novel thing that I was doing. And I just immediately took that and threw it in the flat file and started working on Wilson and started drawing these. And I, at first I was like, what style am I going to draw this in? Because some stories, some little pages were very serious, some were funny. And I started trying all these different styles. And then at a certain point I was like, oh, I should just do it like this. Just each one has its own presence right. and own style. Yeah, yeah. And that somehow worked. Do you feel uh do you feel that 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 because that happened when it happened that you know, emotionally that you were able to process the grief? I think it helped. I think it helped. You know, I look at that book and I sort of I have I have I have some kind of peace with my dad, you yeah. know, somehow through that book, you know. Did, was it a pro- a troubled relationship? Not really, no. Yeah. But he was just very like non-demonstrative and and you know kept, left let me go on my own. You know, he's yeah. very much about like you're you know you have your own life. I'm not going to intrude, but right. you know, but you always want you dream your whole life of that. Like I want to tell you about the you know that we have a lot of money. You yeah. didn't know that, right? Right. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Surprise. Guess what? I've always been a billionaire. Right. And I've I, lived I just got to make this life. map to where the chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or just even like I I liked your comics or so, you know he was he's just like he would never have said that yeah so he wouldn't have never no it's it's weird what you have to you know, well that's sort of that lesson you learn that if you don't somehow put a reasonable uh you know self parenting mode yes. into your mind right uh, you're you're fucked yeah you're fucked yeah. yeah and usually you're fucked for a good long time before you realize that <laughs> right <laughs> right right so you know that that book was largely about dealing with that and then, you know, about the other the, the other uh, struggles of, you know, becoming a parent. I was, you know, just had a kid right before he died, so. Yeah. And you had a health scare yourself, right? I did. I did. Yeah. I had a I had a open heart surgery. It was fun. I can't fucking Yeah. Like I like uh, what happened? I had a, like a lifelong birth defect that, you know, it's like if it was on my ear or something, like, what the hell is that on your yeah, ear? Right. But it was like my heart and it had this huge heart valve that was like, didn't connect. And, and so it was never quite working the whole time, well, my whole life. And at a certain, I was like 40, I don't know, 45, something like that. And all of a sudden I would be like walking up a hill in San Francisco and I was like, I got to sit down on the sidewalk. I'm tired. You know, and I just thought like, oh, that's what happens when you get to be 40. And, yeah. and everybody's like, nah, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> the other people can walk up a hill, you know. And so I went to the doctor and he was like, oh my God, you know, this sounds like it was like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I went to the cardiologist, like you know, and flopping the, piece it was of- just a flopping, like, you know, walrus <laughs> tusk or something. And, and they sent me to, uh, you know, not emergency surgery, but pretty quick, and I had eight hours of surgery. Well, oh my god! But but the great thing about it, it's this: I got this old like war vet guy who who went in and like you know I don't you can I can spare you the details of no, the, like the don't the chest you know they literally saw your breastplate open yeah. with a with a saw like a power saw yeah, and yeah, like yeah. open it up and you're and you're dead basically for eight I was out for eight hours you're on like a life machine that keeps your heart and lungs they, going they bypass your heart so but they your can heart work is, on it but your heart is stopped for right. eight hours you know and so he but basically the surgery is this beautiful origami kind of thing like where they sew it and fold it into this thing where it's actually structurally stronger than it would be as a normal heart uh-huh 
And so now, like the I go in the cardiac, like your heart is beautiful. It sounds like it's amazing, you know. So it's like better than it would have been if I just oh not my had god. Anything. So it's like it's one of the rare, you know, huge life changing things that you come out and you're like, I feel great now instead of like ah, I feel a little diminished from that. Yeah, you know? and that happened after your father died. Uh, no, a little before, a couple years before. So you had to deal with that. Yeah. Like you had it, like I imagine when you going into open heart surgery, you're like, this I was is my... done. I was totally checked out. Like so you... now I kind of, I do feel like I know what it's like to die a little bit. You know, I was yeah. really like, I was like said goodbye. I had all my affairs in order, you know? Really? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your wife just was sort of like, what did you? She was shot in deep shock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, Every and, once in a while, she thinks, she goes, oh, my God, that happened. You right. Know, like well, it's, it's weird, just, right? Yeah. You put it in a different part of your brain when that's a PTSD yeah. in itself. Totally. Totally. And you came out of it? And, yeah. And when you woke up, was it like, you know? Oh, it was so weird to wait. Just like, you know, I, yeah. she said I w- woke up and like lurched like a zombie. Like I leapt up and like, l- you know, reached out like I was trying to escape. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find that you were... Like I, I notice when when I see public personalities who go through open heart surgery that did you find yourself more vulnerable or more sensitive or more like the idea that you literally you know you your heart was way open. <laughs> no, I felt I felt tougher in a way. I felt like oh really? Anything, you know, people be oh I, I got stabbed or something. It's like yeah, big deal. I got I took yeah. a cannonball to the chest basically. <laughs> and know, was there a threat of you dying or needing you know like the, I mean did, when you were going in? Oh, were they in, like in the surgery, I think it was he was quite horrified at how bad it was. You know, I think it was like I I really got the greatest guy in the world who who did it in the way he did it because otherwise they can give you like a, a replacement valve that you have to get switched out every 10 years yeah or, you know that would have been a nightmare oh my god that's uh well good congratulations yeah yeah i know i'm but it lucky. didn't it didn't uh like like i don't see any surgery in your comics is there any surgery no i haven't really done it's it's more sublimated of just like you know crazed violence that happens out of the blue you know it's, I w- after that happened i would have these dreams where just horrible you know, people were eating me alive, and so you know, just horrible nightmares came really? out of that. Yeah, so I've really repressed it because you know you're just completely out for the whole thing. Like I didn't feel any pain the whole time, and it was. But then when you woke up, I imagine looking at the scar that it runs, was it was intense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, a ghost world because that you know that was sort of. Um, <laughs> something that really hadn't happened where you know a, a comic like that becomes a, a film that that becomes very popular and and it won awards yeah. right did you yeah. get an, did you get an oscar Who we didn't an oscar? win an oscar but we got nominated yeah we a beautiful mind beat us out but ghost world was how did you feel about because like i had a, a i remember having an attachment to the comic and and that you know if you're a person that can read graphic novels like right. that yeah i think some people just can, don't have it like the to sort it's, of like put the picture and the text together oh, yeah. you know, subconsciously yeah that it works and, and a world is created that you know you have a relationship with that i imagine right. certainly as the artist but even as a guy who read it like you know how, i was always sort of like how are you going to create that space yeah and and I think uh, you know Zweigoff did did a pretty good job with that, that you, you know that you had these again like we talked about before that your characters are are carrying the you know the burden of 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 history in a way yeah <laughs> right that you know how do you how do you make them live in that sparse 
environment. How, how did you feel he did with that? I, you know, I was I was around for the whole thing. You yeah, know, I wrote the screenplay with him, and uh-huh. um, and he was real nice to just sort of let me. He, he was like, he sort of admitted, like, I don't really like get these girls as well as you do, and so he would let me make all the calls for you know like what they're wearing and like what their rooms look like and all that stuff. So I felt you know I felt like it was I was a big part of it. I felt like you know he he made a a really good film. You know, it's really hard to make a film out of out of a, another work. You know, yeah. it's it's not easy at all and and I felt like he brought some energy and life to it that if we had just transcribed the comic it just wouldn't have been there. Was it because he did the crumb documentary was that part of your appeal uh to him and, and him to you in a way it was you know he i met him after the crumb documentary i had known of him for years because crumb always draws pictures of him and they're yeah. in a band together and all that and uh you know i met him and i just felt like okay he's somebody i could totally understand their sense of humor i know where he's coming from you know he's like a uh you know from the midwest and and you know we just have this similar right you know, he's 10 he's probably 15 years older than me yeah but he he was sort of the older brother that i didn't quite have around right, right. you know and, yeah and the so one I, that wasn't terrifying yeah or yeah or just <laughs> chaotic who, yeah who was who was around you know like i he and I, I don't know he just he felt like a somebody i could totally get along with and i thought if i'm gonna ever make a movie it's not gonna be anybody who i get along with better than this guy right so and you did too yeah we did too Art school confidential. Yeah. What I learned in watching those movies was that it's very hard to to get the the specific um, depth of of characters that are created in a graphic novel yeah. from actors. That that it's, it's very different. It's yeah, because there's a there 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 in in some ways they're they're more human in the graphic novel. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I'm doing comics, it's. To me, that's the ultimate sort of one on one to one communication. Like I'm drawing it myself; nobody's touching it. Yeah, it's just me. You're reading it. You're not. Nobody's over your shoulder going, "Look at this panel." You know, you're. It's a complete one to one communication. Right. And if you're watching a movie, it's you know 700 people making it for an audience of 400 or you know five on your couch or whatever. It's, right. It's a very different thing. And you, you're conscious of that. Yeah. 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 You know, usually the best movies are made out of a short story. Or right, you just, right, you have, right. You have like a... You, have, you can it, fill in the I gaps. I think it's great when you start with a character um, and you have and you have a kind of a simple through line. Right. And you have that. And you so you know, like, okay, I know this character and then you bring it to life. Right. Well, but when you have to start cutting out, you know, like we had to cut out 15 years of this plot because and, it's just, you know, it's a 900 page book. And add a guy. And add a guy. To right. accommodate the, the cut right. of the 900 pages. Right. We just added a guy. Right. We just like, had what? a guy. You know, he, he explains it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. But this one, uh, Patience, the new book, which which I enjoyed a lot and I, it's fresh in my mind. It's, it, it's weird when I start looking at all the stuff of yours that I read over my life. Sure. That like, I'm like, oh my God, I read all this stuff. But it, it sits in a place. It, you know, you right. occupy a place in my mind that that, that is a, a style and a form and characters and it defines certain things about the way I think and, and about how I see things. In the new book, like it looks like, like you, but it feels like, were you a little looser with the drawing? I was, you know, that's the longest book I've ever done by many uh-huh. pages, and so I was trying to keep, I was trying to keep it where it looked somewhat uniform in the style, but that to me every page has a different kind of presence to it. You know, there's a lot of different things going on, right? Visually, that right. 
I didn't necessarily want to telegraph for the audience, make it really apparent, but for me, it's uh, it's it's uh, you know, it's just a different flow throughout the whole thing. And also, like you know, from the very beginning, there's an inkling, like you know, once you see what the story is, right? You know, there's a couple ways that can go just be just by, and I'm not a huge you know, science fiction. Nor am I. Guy, yeah, right. Yeah. But you do start to sort of like, like, oh, uh, like, is he going to erase himself? Right. You know, like, uh, you know, uh, is he going to solve the crime? Right. Isn't he just by virtue of going back in time, even if he does anything, doesn't that fuck everything up? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. No, <laughs> I had to believe me. That was not stuff I, I loved having to worry about, but I, <laughs> I got into it, you know? Yeah. It, yeah. And it actually, I, I mean, this, as much as this is a, is a narrative that's maybe the most, uh, you know, easily understood narrative I've done, or you know, the most sort of mainstreamish narrative I've done. Uh-huh. It, it was it required. It was almost an experimental book for me. I was trying to do something that um, that I had to really occupy myself with, like the the flow of the story and the narrative. And I was hoping that would free up my mind in other ways, which it did. You know, it made me able to do those crazy images, and it all came out of that. And right, so you had to sort of, for maybe for the first time, like really lay down the story first? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, well, that's one of those great things where you have, like in comedy, if you, you know, you set something up at the beginning and then there's a callback later and people right. think you're a genius. Right. You know, like, oh, that's right. from the How joke How did he before. do that? Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there yeah. is that, that element where you set up this stage of characters, but the, the narrative is displaced by the time travel thing, so you don't really know the significance of any event. Right. You know, other than, you know, right. she's murdered, and right. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. No. But but you did see recurring characters going, well, how's this all going to play out? But the right. one that ultimately ends up playing out, I didn't see it coming. Good. Okay, good. <laughs> I worked hard. I worked hard. I, and well, I, that worked. Yeah. I mean, my, my hope, and of course this is impossible in this world, was that people would read the book having no idea what it was. You know, they're just, oh. I didn't. Good. Oh, good. And I was sort of expecting, like, you know, like I looked at the cover, I'm like, well, here we go into some borderline sad lives. Right. Right. (laughs) And and that's how it began. You know, the first 10 pages are worrying about their money troubles. And I really wanted people. Classic you. I wanted people to, okay, I get it. You know, this is good. And then turn the page, like, what the, you know, and then then 20 pages later, like, wait a minute, how did we get in the future, you know? Yeah. But now, you know. Definitely did work. Now, every review that comes out, it tells like 90% of the story. It's so you know it's like it's like well you know Norman Bates kills Janet Lee in the shower and then great <laughs> things happen you know <laughs> then it's that's watch fu- it well, that, play that, out that then his mother sucks. you know yeah it's just yeah you know and I'd forgotten that I'd gotten so busy that you know I don't make the time to to read graphic novels because I fucking eat them up they they're sure. actually something I can do you know i can't it's hard for me to get through a whole book sure. but like if i sit down with the with the graphic novel and like yeah. i did it was just the other night i'm like i, I just i didn't stop i went yeah, all yeah, the way great yeah and it's then like an hour, it's an hour and 10 minutes or something you know it's it's like, like a, a short, short movie. movie yeah it's what we all want we wish movies were like that <laughs> but but also like it's just interesting when who is the audience for it now in you know you know well, that, yeah because I'm, like i i know your stuff right and and you know and it's like it, it, I, I've had this conversation about standups too. You have this sure. window right. where you're culturally relevant, right. and then you're still doing what you do, and you're right. you're growing in it, and you're sure. evolving. But your audience is sort of like, I got kids. I got. Kids. <laughs> well, yeah. it, well, it's probably easier just to buy a graphic novel than to go out to the comedy club. So it's you know I, that's well, you're benefiting there. I'm that's benefit, true. Yeah, you know, and I really have a lot of there's like really young you know 
people like late high school sure they're like yeah red well they're like you and i were with crumb like there's there's always the great thing about what you do is that it's all there to be discovered right and and you can discover it for the first time like you know you're not bringing any baggage you don't have to go to youtube it's like look this this is a book that i found and and you're showing it to a kid who's going like who the what is that yeah and it's all new there was a girl last night who told me she grew up in some like tea party town in some crappy you know central valley town and um, and just was so alienated, just felt like, you know, she's like real oppressive Christian family and stuff. And she said she was in a used bookstore and found a beat up copy of Ghost World and it like changed her life. And it, that oh. to me was just like, that's worth everything. Oh, know? that's the best. It was the best thing, you know? Yeah. It was like, you know, like you, there, there's that moment that, that some people who live in pain have where, you, you know, because you're so caught up in these patterns that, you know, insulate you from from allowing your uh the external to destroy you that you know that becomes your life and then all of a sudden you're you're given the gift of this thing that makes you go like oh there's another world out there yeah there's, and there, and, uh, and that it wasn't just like on instagram or you know right, it's like in a right. used bookstore right, that to me like, was like oh you know that's well, what i dreamed of. that moment where where somebody you know feels you know not alone and validated yeah. and not like a freak Right. And they're like, right. I'm going where the freaks right. are. Yeah, and where? now she's living in L.A. Yeah. You know, so I was like, all right, you, <laughs> you made it. Her. You made it. So, like, I know there's a struggle, you know, certainly with comedy. And, and but, uh, Is your mom still around? Yeah. That, you know, w- w- when you, you know, you feel finally like you're, you're, you're validated to them. You, you, yeah. you know where they don't just sort of like well you know when you're done with this <laughs> when, when you go become a dentist yeah yeah. Right. yeah i mean my mom the auto mechanic had not didn't couldn't pull that on me too well you know because she yeah. had really followed her own crazy right path. right so, so so she's always been on board and yeah you know yeah totally yeah she's she's certainly never voiced any complaints but do you uh but having done some work for the New Yorker, not that she sounds like necessarily a she, New Yorker. She is a New Yorker person. Yeah. 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 So that mu- was that a big deal? That's the biggest deal. I mean, that was the tragedy of my life as I was, when my dad was in that hospital, Yeah. my first New Yorker cover was coming out and yeah. he died two days before it hit the stands. <sighs> and that was like all my life, you got to do a New Yorker cover. That would be the best, you know, do a New he Yorker. said that? And that was his thing for his whole, and he was a in you know fan for- every minute of my life yeah and the fact that and he was telling the nurses in the hospital he's doing a new yorker cover oh and they were really like, what i don't know what that is yeah yeah and uh and so that was just the ultimate like fuck you from god that, well, okay. that you know <laughs> that, that he, he didn't, didn't get to, to see, see that yeah <laughs> that was literally that's when you know there's a there is a god and he's a malevolent oh creature. is there oh uh, my i hope it's not bad we're, I, we're in bad shape I've dismissed the uh, the the possibility. Uh, well, Do you struggle with that or no? no? No, no. My family couldn't have been more atheistic. <laughs> <laughs> it's a relief, isn't it? Somewhat, it is. It's because like you you think that if you had the ability to suspend your disbelief or were 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 brought up with that, that you wouldn't seek all these different outlets to express your you know your 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 own struggle with the seven deadly sins. I mean, right. you know that that's the beautiful thing about the seven deadly sins is that they're built in, man. Right. So you you know. It, and it, nobody's going to kick them, right? But you know, if all you do is is you know beg for forgiveness for 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 uh, I- I- indulging them, then you you don't get to to sort of uh, celebrate the the struggle, right? I mean, I to, on the flip side, I really had to like devise my own morality in a way, you know, because you're not 
you don't you're not given that as a young kid. These are like the moral principles that you guide your life by. You know, it was just all I had to sort of observe the way the world works and kind of figure out like what do I really believe, you know, in a moral sense. You what, know, so. what, what, when when well, what what are they? Like in a general oh, way, oh, and that people are you know are are generally um, you know uh, uh, you, you know craven and, and 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 troubled and and uncomfortable, and they're going to do a lot of things to relieve themselves. And <laughs> yeah, I think I mean there I think there's some uh, there's some you know screenwriting principle where it's you know I'm not that I don't necessarily believe in, but it's something like you know all your characters are trying to work towards a place of comfort. You know, they're trying to make themselves more, like, comfortable, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, relaxed, happy, you know, and all that. And, right. they're, and they're going through all these obstacles. And it's good. You know, I sort of think of every person is looking for that. You know, yeah. they're looking for a certain – everybody wants respect and they want that, you know, that kind of, um, you know, m- mental satisfaction, you know, that kind of feeling of, of like, everything's okay. The more, whenever I think about the human race, I'm impressed that yeah. we've that, like we've got things pretty well together compared to how it really could right. be so horrifically chaotic, and it's kind of miraculous. Yeah, and it's not, and it's not because of law necessarily. No, it, that that's what always sort of fascinates me because I remember years ago, you know that you know there's there's no reason it shouldn't just be a chaotic clusterfuck I mean, out it, there every it, day. It really should just be. Just, just crazy, just horrific post-apocalyptic yeah. world. Yeah. You know, if if you know, sort of half the people in the world had their way, it would be like that. And there's the the other half that somehow right compensate for that. You know, right? Well, that's why you know, it's at least when you see somebody like Trump become a reality, right. you're like, oh, there they are. They're yeah, the, yeah, right. right. <laughs> they're the ones that right. it might make it difficult and it, and for it's everybody. So, and it's so easy to feel like, you know, he's just going to take over and become the dictator and then we're in Nazi Germany and then we're, yeah, you know, yeah. and the, are, the, the, the yeah. one good thing about a democracy, even a failing one, is it's a little tricky to pull that off. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to have, get a lot of states on your side. You'd have yeah. to, you know, get a lot of, uh, right. you know, local uh, uh, police on your right. side. The military has yeah. to turn on its own people. A lot of things, <coughs> obviously, it's happened in history right. and you don't want to be that guy that says, could never happen here and could then never happen again but be, you know doodling on you know a piece of shoe leather in a camp somewhere i, I mean I've, I've always been really fascinated with conspiracy theories but then they never make sense because you just how many people do you know who can coordinate anything well you that's know, exactly like a right phone call is, you know my observation about conspiracy theories is they serve the same purpose as religious dogma yeah is that you know to to make sense and have a feeling of control over something that that is makes no sense and right. it can be read many ways right. it just becomes this unprovable set of dogmatic things right. that people commit to yeah yeah that that's the fucked up thing about religion and those kind of things in general is that you know the truth is not relevant right <laughs> right no it, and it and they state that you know yeah, it's about yeah. faith right. yeah and that's what but yeah but but i love i love the brain power that goes into a conspiracy sure, sure. theory and just that that kind of byzantine you know building well, of it's, world it, it's like writing a comic very right, much right and it, and it's all about what you were saying before is it's human beings you know trying it's another manifestation of of human beings trying to feel safe and comfortable in a way right i mean certainly right through writing characters and a lot of uh unpleasant characters you know, I found I've always tried. You know, I, I often start with a character like Wilson, who's sort of an off-putting guy, and my goal is to find a way to love that guy by the end of the book. And that's you know certainly that I can I can do that with uh, with you know 
maybe not with Ted Cruz, but, right? But you know, but with, with yeah, the, with, any, with but with people. some poor schmuck at the Trump rally, you sure, know, it's easy sure. to think like, who is this guy? How did he get like that? Well, some of your characters would definitely yeah. be there. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, well, that's great, man. Uh, it was great talking to you. I you think. Too. Uh, are you you doing anything else down here? You just doing book stuff? You got any uh, TV projects or movie projects? Happening? Um, there is a Wilson movie coming out. Really? In the fall? Yeah. Who's playing Wilson? Woody Harrelson is Wilson. Wow. Yeah. He's very good. Yeah. He can he, do anything. I, I saw him. I saw him. You know, do two days of shooting, and it was hilarious. It's already shooting. Who's directing it's, it? It's uh, this guy Craig Johnson, who's made a film called The Skeleton Twins with uh-huh. uh, Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader. Oh right, that that's yeah. uh, people like that movie. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, and uh, Laura Dern plays Wilson's wife. Oh, that's great. It's good. Yeah. And you wrote the script? I wrote the script. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah, and when's I'm excited. The, what's the release date on that? It's it's fall. We don't know the the official date yet. And the new book, Patience, is great, and it was an uh, honor talking to you, man. Oh, uh, you too, man. This was really fun. He was amazing, right? Some of that interview is going to stay with me, just the way he sees things. I... It, it, uh, it's weird the ones that stick, but that one's going to stick. I hope you enjoyed that. Also, don't forget we're matching all donations that our listeners give to the Electronic Frontier Foundation as they fight off the podcast patent troll. Go to EFF.org slash WTF, and whatever you can contribute will match all contributions until they hit $5,000. This is an ongoing battle, people, and it's a battle for a lot of small businesses, a lot of tech companies, and now it's hit home and landed right here in the garage and the homes and basements and closets and studios of all podcasters. So uh, think about that and please try to help out, uh, support the cause. Also go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. My show, Marin, is on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. There's a few more left, I think five, six maybe. Uh, my tour dates for uh, Rochester, Spokane, Salt Lake City, uh, Bloomington, um, Albuquerque, they're all up at WTFPod.com slash tour. So, good. I got a new pedal, a new box, a new toy. Not even a paid promotion, but Earthquaker sends me shit, and sometimes I'll plug it in, it's like, ooh, what is that? This Earthquaker spatial delivery thing. I don't know what <laughs> What is that? Boomer lives!